Well, welcome church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here. And some of you guys probably know my family, especially if you attend the church, you might have met my brother and my parents since they attend here as well. Now, suppose my dad says to you, and he says, one of my sons grew up loving to play sports. He'd play any sport, football, basketball, but the sport he loved the most was baseball. The son of mine was chubby and he was a little slow, but that didn't matter. As long as he was on the field, he loved to play baseball. Didn't have a lot of friends, wasn't much of an extrovert, but he did have one friend named Justin. And if they weren't out on the baseball field playing, they were in the room trading baseball cards. A little quiet and shy, but if you give him some time, the son of mine would open up to you. And then imagine my, my mom comes and then she says, one of my sons didn't play any sports, wasn't involved in sports. Instead, he loved dancing. Wasn't chubby by any means, nor was he massively muscular, but he had the build of a dancer because he loved to dance. He loved to stay active and be on the dance floor. And, and this son of mine loved crowds. He loved being around people. He was an extrovert. And he'd probably open up to you before you open up to him. And I would ask you the question, who is talking about who? If you know my family, who is talking about who? And some of you guys would say, well, your dad is probably talking about your brother Daniel and your mom's talking about you. Or vice versa, your, your mom's talking about your brother Daniel and your dad's talking about you. To which I would say, wrong. My parents weren't talking about two different sons. They were talking about the same son at different times in history. They were talking about me. My father would have been talking and describing to you elementary school, Greg, and my mom would have been describing to you high school, Greg. I share that with you because in the Bible, the Bible gives us many descriptions of the Messiah, the one whom God would anoint and send to save his people. And when you look at the messianic prophecies, these prophecies of the Messiah, sometimes the descriptions are so different from each other, so different that some people would look at it and think that two individuals were being described. But what they got wrong was it was one individual at different points on the timeline because there is only one. His name is Jesus who fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah. And when Jesus came that first time, he came and he fulfilled all the prophecies of the Messiah's birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. He fulfilled it perfectly. And yet, there are still many prophecies unfulfilled. Did you know that for every one prophecy regarding the first coming, there are eight prophecies regarding the second coming? But just as perfectly as Jesus fulfilled the prophecies regarding the Messiah's first coming, he will perfectly fulfill all the prophecies regarding the second coming. This is the hope we have of his coming. I want to show you the hope we have of his second coming today as we come before the word. And before we do that, I want to ask you, would you join and pray with me? And let's ask the Lord to lead us into this time. Father God, we pray that you would speak to us. God, we pray that you would 
open our eyes as we open your word. God, I pray that this message would truly encourage us and give us hope. Lord, as crazy as things are, not only in our world, but for some of us in our lives right now, for some of us in our homes, for some of us in our workplaces, I pray, Lord, that we would lift our eyes up and see hope, hope that is coming, God. Would you do a deep work in our hearts and do something so powerful and mighty that we can't explain other than the Holy Spirit of God is doing something in me. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak and that you would Show us things that maybe we've never seen before or remind us of things that we've heard before but have forgotten. Lord, we give you this time. Lord, would you make it yours? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, I showed you how the second coming is unlike the rapture, how they are two different events. Today, I want to continue to show you how the second coming is unlike the first coming how they also are two different events. We talked about the Battle of Armageddon last week. And today, following the Battle of Armageddon, we're going to see the vision of his second coming. So would you guys write this down in your notes if you're taking notes? The second coming is unlike the first coming. The second coming is unlike the first coming. In the first coming... There are prophecies that talked about the Messiah coming humbly, born in the town of Bethlehem. But there are also other prophecies saying he would come in power like a king from Judah. There are prophecies that said the Messiah would be a suffering lamb. There are other prophecies that said he would be a mighty lion. There were some prophecies that said the Messiah would be this, this gentle, meek lamb led to the slaughter. And then other prophecies said he would come to be a sovereign ruler. And like I said, though people thought there were two individuals, they were just the same individual at different points on the timeline. Some prophecies said that this Messiah would come riding in peacefully on a donkey, and he did in his first coming. But other prophecies said that he will come powerfully riding in on a war horse. Check out the vision that John gets right after the vision of the battle of Armageddon. In Revelation 19, we pick up in verse 11. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Circle, if you have your Bibles in front of you, those two words in verse 11, white horse, white horse. The vehicle of choice for conquering kings was a white horse. Because in the Bible, the color white symbolized dominion and power and authority. And back in the days when a king would conquer a city, after the battle, he would then ride a white horse into the cities he just conquered. And I love in this passage that before the battle, Christ comes in a white horse. 
This is his triumphal re-entry, not on a donkey, but on a white war horse. Why? Because he is saying the victory is already mine. I have come to conquer and destroy the enemy and evil. And so let me show you his triumphal re-entry. His triumphal re-entry, take you back to Acts chapter 1. And remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is on that hillside, that Mount of Olives with his disciples. Jesus had just resurrected from the dead, and he's talking to his disciples, commissioning them. And then right before their eyes in Acts 1, all of a sudden, Jesus lifts off. He lifts off the earth, and he's taken into the air, and he's there in the clouds. And the disciples are standing there saying, what in the world just happened? Our master just flew up into the sky. And they're standing there, and then all of a sudden an angel comes. Acts chapter 1 tells us that the angel says, why are you guys looking up into the sky? I tell you, the same way he left and went into heaven will be the same way in which he returns. And so the angel tells them, just like he went up into the air on the clouds, he will also return in the air and on the clouds, but not only in the same manner, but also in the very same place right there in the Mount of Olives. Now, how would we know that? Well, because of Messianic prophecy. Go back to the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. The prophecy of the Messiah says in verse 4, And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And so prophecy is on that day, the Messiah will one day stand his feet planted on the Mount of Olives. I want to show you a picture of the Mount of Olives. I want to zoom into a picture. Because if you go there today, you're going to find a Jewish cemetery, the largest Jewish cemetery in the world, with over 70,000 tombs. Why? Well, because they believe that this is going to be the site where the resurrection of the dead first takes place. Based on the Messianic prophecies, according to the Jewish Midrash, which is commentary from Jewish scholars on Jewish scriptures, they say this will be the place on the day of resurrection where the dead will come to life. And that's in line with the day when the Messiah will plant his feet there on the Mount of Olives there in the Holy Land. It's incredible. Now, I know 2020 for so many of us has been such a bummer. A bummer because many things have been canceled. Maybe high school graduation was canceled. Maybe a wedding was canceled. Maybe a vacation of yours was canceled. One of the bummers for me is the fact that one of my bucket list items was canceled. It's always been on my bucket list, even before I got married, that I would one day get to visit the Holy Land, that I would go on an Israel tour. I even tried to convince my wife, Monica, that we would go there for the honeymoon, and she said, no. But I was excited because this November with, with church, with SBCC, we were supposed to go and I was supposed to be on that trip. And yet it's been canceled. But you know what? I'm not complaining. I'm not bummed out because I know that one day, one day I will get to visit the Holy Land. One day I will be able to go see the sights of Israel the place where Jesus walked, and one day I'll be able to visit the Mount of Olives 
where Jesus was with his disciples right before he ascended and the place where he said he would descend. I'll get to go. And here's the most amazing thing. When I get to walk the Holy Land on that trip, I know that I will not be following behind a tour guide giving me a tour of Israel, but I will be following behind the King of Israel, Jesus Christ himself. The king of kings and lord of lords, when he touches down on earth and plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, my feet too will be planted there. When I think about it, it's like, what a trip. Like, what a trip. Literally, what a trip that will be. Anybody want to be on that tour, on that trip? I know I do because the Bible says we who are raptured will be with him in heaven, and then we too will come with him back to earth. But here's a disclaimer. I have to tell you that when we come back with him in his second coming, it will not be a tour that he leads us on. It will be a war that he leads us in. See, because he's going straight to battle, to the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19, we pick up again in verse 14. It says, the armies of heaven... We're following him. How do we know we're not just talking about the heavenly angelic armies, but we're talking about the church. How do we know? Because it says they were riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, which is an allusion to the church. And I'm going to show you that in just a moment. But verse 15 says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Which nations? The nations where the kings and their people are trying to attack Jesus himself. It says, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's the promise that once he touches down and the army, the church who is with him, when we touch down in the Mount of Olives, Jesus from there will then ride into the Valley of Megiddo where the Battle of Armageddon is taking place and he will engage in warfare. Verse 19 continues. He says, Then I saw the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the white horse and his army. They're, they're trying to fight against Jesus and the church. But the beast, the Antichrist, was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. In his first coming, Jesus fought no one. He came in peace and grace. But in his second coming, he comes in power and judgment. He comes to wage war against evil, against the Antichrist and his false prophet. He throws them into the lake of fire. And then the next chapter tells us that Jesus Christ himself seizes the devil, the enemy, and locks him up in the bottomless pit for the next 1,000 years. Jesus will deal with 
and destroy the enemy and evil. And it is then Christ will literally and physically on earth establish his reign for the next 1,000 years. It's what we call the millennial kingdom. Christ will be here sitting on the throne. Now I know elections are coming up. And it's always the tense time in our nation. And the reality is whoever gets voted into the White House, there's inevitably going to be people who are upset and disappointed, no matter who ends up winning. And inevitably, like we did on the last election, there's going to be people who say, it doesn't matter who's in the White House because Jesus is on the throne, which is true. Amen to that. But on that day, Jesus will truly be reigning on the throne. And that's not just a comforting cry. That's not just a spiritual reality, but it will also be a physical reality, a literal reality as Jesus Christ will rule over the nations as King of kings, as Lord of lords, as he rules here on this planet, right here on earth. And when he reigns, there's going to be all joy and all righteousness and all peace and all kindness and all compassion and all love. The only thing there won't be is random acts of kindness. There won't be any of those. Why? Because every act will be filled with kindness when Christ, our King, rules in righteousness. And that is possible because he has dealt away with evil and sin, with the Antichrist and the devil. That's the millennial kingdom. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week as we focus on it. But here's what we need to know for now. The second coming is unlike the first coming. The second coming is unlike the first coming. He will come this time to destroy all evil for good. He will replace all evil with good. And though the two comings are very different, you know what they have in common? Certainty. For as surely as he came the first time, Jesus is surely coming the second time. So would you guys write this down in your notes as the last thing I want to talk about today. The second coming is surely coming. The second coming is surely coming. Now, when we look in the Bible, God often is so gracious to give us certain patterns or types to help us to know what to expect. And he gives us these patterns, I believe, because of his love for us. And I want to show you a pattern that I find so interesting. It's a pattern that goes six, then one. Six, then one. It's almost like a rhythm. In Genesis... God created the universe in six days, then rested on the seventh day. We go to the next book in Exodus. The Israelites were to told to sow the land for six years, then rest on the seventh year. The next book, Leviticus 23, tells the people to work six days, rest on the seventh day. Toil six days, rest on the seventh. Observe a Sabbath. And so we see this important teaching from God. Six then one. Six, then one. Create six days, 
rest one day. Sow six years, rest one year. Toil six days, rest one day. And over and over we see this pattern, six, then one, six, then one. Why do I share that with you? Well, when you break down human history, from Adam to us in the present day, it's been about 6,000 years. Trace the genealogy. It's right there in the Bible. From, from Adam to Abraham is about 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus is about 2,000 years. From Jesus to us, 2,000 years. That's about 6,000 years. And then the Bible says that when Jesus comes again, there will be 1,000 years of rest. Some people call that the Sabbath millennium. Why do they call it the Sabbath millennium? Because it will be a period of rest from evil and suffering. Where for 6,000 years, people on earth have been under the curse of sin. We have suffered sin. We have toiled in labor. We have battled against evil. And there's been this curse But when Jesus comes a second time, we will experience true rest and relief from sin and struggle. Now, some of you guys would say, okay, that's a thousand. That's not a day. That's a thousand years. Six thousand years and one thousand years is not like six and one. But look what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.8. He tells us, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Why do I share this with you? Because if this sixth then one pattern is at all intentional and God is graciously showing us what to expect, then I can't help but to see that six thousand years of suffering and sin and wickedness followed by a thousand years of rest puts us at such a unique time in history. Such a time as this. I don't know the time or the hour when Jesus is going to come, but I want to say to you, church and friends listening right now, if there are any of, you, any of you sick of the suffering, if any of you are tired from toil, if any of you guys are weary and wrestling, if any of you guys are deteriorating from depression, if any of you guys are grieving, I want to encourage you, look up. Look up. Because the hope is that rest is coming soon. That the day of rest is coming, and it may come sooner than we know. Rest is coming. The second coming gives us hope because from scripture we know it is surely coming. God is gracious to give us patterns. I want to show you another pattern that I believe gives us hope for his coming. Like you look at the Bible and have you ever noticed this analogy that that is given to us all throughout? This relationship we have with God, God compares it to a marriage. Right in the Old Testament, The people of God is called his wife, and God is portrayed as the husband. And we get to the New Testament, and that metaphor is carried throughout where where Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. And it's kind of interesting that God keeps painting this picture of our relationship with him 
to be like one of a marriage. It's like a marriage. And if he's going to sprinkle that throughout the scriptures, it's worth our time to understand or try to understand how people understood marriage, how the Jewish audience understood marriage. Well, I want to show you a little bit, give you a little bit of insight today. Jewish weddings traditionally had two major components, the Kiddushin and the Nisuin. Let me explain that to you. The Kiddushin was the marriage betrothal. It's the marriage betrothal. It's kind of like the engagement that we, we do here in the West, here in the States. We have this engagement period. But the, the marriage betrothal in, in Jewish custom was a little bit more binding than, than our engagement here. In fact, there was a contract where the two families would come together and the groom would actually pay a price. He would pay a price to show his commitment to that woman. And then when he paid the price and made that contract, then the two would separate. Once that covenant was made, the the groom would leave the bride and, and the groom and the bride would physically separate for about a year, about 12 months. The question is, why would they do that? Well, because in the custom, the son would go to the father's house to prepare a place to live. He would prepare a room for him and his new bride to live in. Now, that's weird to me because when I got married, the day I said I do, the next day I moved out. I couldn't wait for that day. I moved out from my parents' home and moved into a new apartment with my bride, Monica. That's how we do it here in the West. But in the ancient Near East... Is a patriarchal society, and so when the son got married, the son didn't move out of the house, the bride moved in. They moved in together. But before she moves in, they spend that year apart where the son once again is preparing the room for her, but she's preparing herself for him. It's during that period where she's getting her wedding garments ready. She's staying pure. She's being vigilant and, and waiting for his coming. Because though she knows he's coming and she's expecting it, she does not know the time nor the day or the hour in which he's going to come to get her. It was kind of like a surprise. It, it was like this anticipation of one day my groom's going to come to take me to his home and marry me forever. It's kind of like our proposal, right? Here, here in the States, when a, a boyfriend is going to propose to his girlfriend, it's going to be a surprise. Like she knows it's coming. She might know it's coming, but she may not know when or where or how. It's a complete surprise. When I proposed to my wife, Monica, true story, I actually proposed twice to her. It's a long story. I'll explain that another time. But I actually proposed twice. And the first time was real. It was actual. I actually gave her the ring that first time. But here's how it went down. She'll tell you how surprised she was. It was an early Sunday morning, about 6.30, 7 a.m. in the morning. Her mom knew about this. And her mom let me into the house. But Monica was still sleeping. She was still sleeping in the bed. And so I, I went up to her room and I snuck into her room while she was sleeping in bed and on all fours I crawled up right next to her bed and I start poking her. Hey Monica, wake up. Hey Monica, 
And you got to imagine Monica, she's like dazed, right? She's half awake. She could barely see because she doesn't have her contacts on. All she sees is this blob in front of her face. She doesn't know if she's dreaming or if it's real. And in that moment, I asked this life-altering question. I said, hey, Monica, Monica, will you marry me? Oh, it was the most romantic proposal ever. It was awesome. No, it was the worst proposal ever. But it was a complete surprise. It shocked her. And I share that with you because that's how proposals are for us here in the States. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know where it's going to happen. We don't know how. It could literally happen in your sleep. Well, in the Jewish custom, the betrothal wasn't the surprise. That was an agreement. But it was the return of the groom from his father's house to take his bride up and bring her home. That was the surprise. She knew it was coming. She just didn't know the time or the hour. But that's okay. Because she would have been spending that time preparing herself getting herself ready for that very moment. So that's the Kiddushin, the, the betrothal period. Then we have the Nisuin. And the Nisuin is the marriage ceremony. Because once the groom comes and he surprises his bride and he takes her to his father's house, the two would come together in an actual wedding ceremony. It would be an intimate ceremony with just the bride and the groom and some intimate family members. And after they consecrate that, that marriage and make the, those vows, then the bride and the groom would go off into a wedding chamber, and there they would consummate the wedding. Just the bride and the groom, just an intimate time of being together to consummate the marriage. But after a period of time of being alone, just them two, then they would come out and the, the groom would bring the bride and he would make a lot of noise and he would join the rest of the, the, the feast. He would join the family and the friends and all the wedding guests and there would be this loud celebration filled with joy and partying because the two have finally permanently come together. That's how... They did weddings back in the day. Now, that's the bride and groom. Check out the pattern it gives us and the insight it gives us into our relationship with Christ, our bridegroom, and the insight it gives us into the end times, right? Because Christ, too, makes a covenant. He makes a purchase for his bride. How does he do so? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says this, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Christ paid a price. It was the currency of his blood when he shed it on the cross. That was his covenant with us to bring us into a relationship with him. But now that we are in this relationship, are we with him? No, we're not, right? Because Jesus ascended into heaven. He's in his father's house. Here we are on earth. We are currently separated and apart, but that's okay. Why, why, why did he leave us? Why is he there and we're here? Well, he told us very plainly, John chapter 14, verse 2. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And so just like the bride and groom in Jewish culture would separate, Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, but he's not going to leave us here because in the next verse, in verse 3, he goes on to say, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so Jesus tells us really plainly that after some time apart, after he prepares a place for us, he will come and he will rapture his bride. He will take us. And we know it's come. We, we, we can expect it. We just don't know the time or the hour, the anticipation of his coming. But he is going to come and he's going to take us to his father's home. And just like in traditional Jewish weddings, when the groom comes to take the bride they will spend a period of time together. The church, the bride, will be with Christ together. But after a period of time, the groom and the bride will return to join in the wedding supper. And the promise is that after a period of time, Christ will come again. And the church, his bride, will come with him. And we will join in the supper feast of the Lamb. When will this all take place? When will this all conclude? At the second coming. At the second coming. Here's the vision that John is given after the tribulation of the second coming. We go back to Revelation 19. And in verse 6 it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Church, this is the hope of his coming. This, I believe, is the greatest promise, the greatest prophecy in all of Scripture that will be fulfilled. The return and the reign of Jesus Christ on earth along with his bride, celebrating with all his people. This is the greatest prophecy and promise we have to look forward to. And so if God is doing this on purpose and he is painting a picture, giving us a pattern in the Bible of our relationship with him being like a marriage, then that gives us hope because we know what has already happened and therefore we know what to expect. We know what has already happened and if the Jewish wedding is a pattern for, our, for us to understand this relationship we have, then we know that on the cross, he has paid the price for us. And we know that in the Father's house, he is preparing a place for us. And we know that in the rapture, he will come and return for us. And we know that one day here on earth, he will dwell with us. If the Jewish wedding is at all a pattern for us, and I believe it is, 
that we already know what has happened, and that gives us hope in what we can expect, what he will do for us, for you, the bride of Christ. I love this marriage pattern. Now, speaking of marriage, when uh, my wife Monica and I got married, um, I just love sharing this illustration because it helps me, and I pray it helps you fall in love with Jesus. But there at my wedding, I'll admit, I cried. And it wasn't a cute cry. It was ugly cry. <laughs> like, ugly cry. It's not like, oh, Greg is crying at the altar. No, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's nasty. He's like contorted face and like, it, it, like hyperventilating kind of crying, right? Because here I am. I'm standing here, and it's an emotional day. And I'm standing here at the altar. And even as my wife's bridesmaids are coming down the aisle, I'm already losing it. Like when her maid of honor, which is Sharon Lee, a lot of you guys who attend SBCC know Sharon. She's the leader of our missions ministry. She was the maid of honor. And as Sharon is coming down, I'm, I'm emotional. And it looks bad because I'm crying when this other woman is walking down the aisle. It looked bad and it was awkward. But it wasn't because of Sharon. It's because I knew what was following. I knew what was coming. And as Sharon made her way down the aisle and took her place up front, I see the doors down the aisle and they shut. And for a brief moment, they remained closed. It felt like eternity. And then all of a sudden, the door swung open again and boom, there she was, my bride. And at that point, I just completely lost it. I was a wreck. It was, it, was, it was gross, to be honest, but I could not control myself. I'm just crying as my bride is walking down the aisle. And, and, and I got to a point where I could finally see through my tears. And as I look through my tears, I'm looking at my bride, and I look into her eyes, and she's not shedding a tear. Like, not a tear in her eye. Like, this girl is, like, stone cold. She's walking down like she's Iron Man, like, boom, 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 I want you. And she's coming, not crying. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with this girl? Cold-hearted. But she told me the secret. She was given a tip by friends. They told her, on your wedding day, when you walk down the aisle, don't look at your groom. Don't look at Greg, because if you do you will start to cry. You will shed tears. And you can't shed tears, girl. Your, your makeup will run. And you can't have your makeup run. You, you'll be ugly. You can't be ugly. You got pictures to take. You got hands to shake. You got people to, you got to be beautiful, girl. So don't look at your groom because he will overwhelm you. They got that part right, right? They got that part. But no, no, they told her, just distract yourself. So she looked forward, but she didn't fix eyes on me. She looked down at my tuxedo. And so she wasn't overwhelmed. She distracted herself. I want to say to you, church, don't listen to that trash. That's terrible advice. Because, church, you are the bride of the eternal groom. You are his bride. 
And I want to say right now, fix your eyes on him. This is not the time to be distracted. This is not the time to drop your head. This is not the time to drop your eyes in despair. This is the time to look up and fix your hope and fix your eyes on the eternal lover of your soul. Be overwhelmed by him. Don't be distracted. Be overwhelmed by him. Be overwhelmed by his compassion. Be overwhelmed by his grace. Be overwhelmed by his mercy. Be overwhelmed with his forgiveness. Be overwhelmed by his fulfillment. Be overwhelmed with how satisfying he is. Let his love overwhelm you. This is the time to look up. For you are his bride. And he is your groom. And your groom, Jesus Christ, is coming for you. He is surely coming. I want to ask you to pray with me. And instead of bowing our heads, let's lift our eyes up. And let's look up to him. And let's just be excited and hopeful that he is coming for you. Now, if you're a believer, look up and just thank him. Get excited about him. Be overwhelmed right now that his promises are yes and amen. They are true. Spend some time in thanksgiving and worship in your own hearts. And now I want to address those of you who may not know Jesus. And maybe you don't have a relationship with him. Maybe you're not sure that you're his bride. I want to give you certainty right now, right here, to know that you will be at the wedding supper with the lamb. That you will participate in that feast and dwell with him forever. The Bible says if you believe by faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he did purchase you with his blood when he died on the cross, that he did resurrect and he's coming in, the Bible says you will be saved. You just believe that in your heart. There's nothing you can do but believe. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be at that wedding supper. And so I want to lead you in a prayer right now. I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. I don't believe prayers save people. I believe faith saves people. And prayers are ways we can communicate our faith. So pray this as if you're talking to God right now. Father God, thank you for allowing me to hear this message, to be reminded and taught of your love for me. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've sinned. So I ask that you forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I believe. I believe by faith you did that. And I believe Jesus rose from the dead And I believe he's coming again. And God, even though there's a lot more I have to learn, help me from this day forward to walk with you. Help me to give my life to you. Come and fill my life with your presence. Lord, I believe this by faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.